If you're new with us today, my name is David Cassidy. I'm the lead pastor here at Spanish River, and it is a joy to welcome you today. We are in the middle of a series on the King of Hope. We are opening up Matthew's gospel together and sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing his word, hearing his voice, seeing his deeds, and seeking to follow him all the way to the cross, all the way through resurrection, all the way into ascension, not so that we can simply learn about him as a figure of history, but see our faith grow more and more in him and our hearts be transformed to be more and more like him. And this morning, we come to Matthew chapter 5. It's one of the most famous parts of the entire Bible, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this particular section of Scripture, some of the lines that uh, people who don't even name the name of Christ, maybe never have even attended church, uh, they know many of these words like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the golden rule. Or they know the verse that everybody knows and everybody quotes, judge not, don't judge me. Everybody says it, nobody knows what it means, but that's a different issue. (laughs) These words echo down across history and have shaped many lives. And the reason Jesus gives this message, which we're calling today, Thy Kingdom Come, is because, as was noted in a beautiful message that Al shared with us last Sunday, Christ has been going about Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And as he announces this arrival of the reign of God, we see people who have been broken mended. We see people who are bound, liberated. And there is great astonishment at Jesus' ministry, and thousands, multitudes are beginning to follow him. And so what we have in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the unfolded message that he's been bringing. Jesus didn't just walk around saying, the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is at hand. This is how he proclaimed the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom is the inbreaking of God's very powerful, transforming presence. When we talk about kingdom, you could say, well, the reign of God, the government of God, that's something which is always, at all times, in every place. There isn't a maverick molecule in the cosmos. Everything is under his sovereign sovereign care and delight and governance, and that's absolutely true. The kingdom is not God's general governing of all things. It is the particular inbreaking of his power into situations and places and people. And you say, oh, look, God is with his people. That's what Jesus is announcing. The kingdom is here. God's presence that is transforming is here. It's also a way of living. When people came to become followers of Jesus, they were not left as they were. They were loved as they were, but they were not left as they were. They were transformed. They were changed from the inside out. And so what Jesus does in this teaching is he lays out, he says, here is a whole new way of life for those who are citizens of this kingdom. And that means that the kingdom is not only something that we're experiencing now, it is something that we are destined for. Paul said, the Lord will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. And so there is a sense in which the kingdom is a future hope 
But while it is a future hope, we must never lose sight of the fact that because Jesus has come and poured out his spirit, the kingdom of God is a present reality. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that means transformational change. And the only people who ever love a change are wet babies. (laughs) When it comes to the challenge of change, we think, oh, I don't know if I want to be changed. I I think I've kind of got my life where I want it. I don't know for sure that I want Jesus' challenge in my life about transformation. You know what it's like. You're driving down the road, and you see a, you see a sign that says, uh, road works ahead. And then here in the United States, we'll, we'll see if it's a, a lane change. We'll, we'll see a merging sign, and uh, our heart begins to sink. And, and, and then we see lane change, and we've got to shift over here. In Britain, they have a, a much more polite version than merge, just merge. I took a picture of a traffic sign in, in London. I love how the British put up and they say, uh, this, is, uh, this is the way we do change. Change priorities ahead. <laughs> That's how we shift lanes when there's road work in London. It's very polite, isn't it? I'm not sure that Jesus was very British in the Sermon on the Mount. Changed priorities, though, for sure. And my work with you this morning is to give you a 30,000-foot bird's-eye view of the Sermon on the Mount. We're not going to tackle every single verse, but I want to read to you this morning from a couple of verses at the beginning, a few verses in the middle, and a couple of verses at the end, and just introduce you to the primary issues that are going on here about the inbreaking of God's kingdom and the new way of life as kingdom citizens that we're called to embrace. So Matthew chapter 5, if you've got a print version of the Bible, please follow along with me. Of course, you can follow along on the screen as well or using an app. Blessings to all those who are online and joining us that way today. Matthew chapter 5, here are the multitudes following Jesus. And so we see in verse 1, we're going to read 1 to, um, one to, one to 3, seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then we have the Beatitudes. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Don't miss that little word is. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Somebody has stuck up their hand and grabbed it. Who has taken hold of the kingdom? To whom does the kingdom belong? To whom is it a current reality? Those who are poor in spirit, those who know their need, those who are not boasting in their strength, but rather in Christ, those who know they need a Savior. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. And then Matthew chapter 6, let's turn over there. Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to read together from verse 8, and then verses 32 and 33. Now, verse 8, first part of the verse, do not be like them. Would you say it with me? Do not be like them. The great pastor, preacher of All Souls Langham Place for many years, John Stott, right across from the BBC and the Oxford Circus, great, well-known international preacher said that this verse, do not be like them, is the center of the whole sermon. And the reason for that is because Jesus draws a contrast between those who are his people and the Gentiles, on the one hand, with their religious practices and their pursuits, and the hypocrisy of dead religion, which was all around him, and also the materialism, the materialism which is 
the idolatrous pursuit of legitimate needs, thinking that all of the things like fashion or clothing or shelter, all of the things to which we ascribe so much importance and significance are going to fulfill our lives. Jesus challenges those idols of religion and materialism, and he does so over in verses 32 and 33. He says this, the Gentiles seek after these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So there's the challenge. And then at the very end of the sermon, let's look at how people responded to Jesus and the challenge of his words, the changed priorities of the kingdom. Matthew 7, 28 and 29. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They were astonished. His teaching was with authority. I want to bring you this morning, just in this introductory message, this overview of the Sermon on the Mount, just a few key things that I want us to pay attention to. The first thing is our identity as Jesus' disciples. The kingdom is a present reality, and this is our identity. Those of us who name the name of Jesus, we are disciples of Jesus Christ. He went up and he sat down on the mountain, and he gathered his disciples to him. Now, disciples, disciples is a word which has certainly religious connotations, but from a dictionary standpoint, denotation, from its actual meaning in the ancient world, while it did have some religious usages, it's simply an ancient word that meant an apprentice. An apprentice. Now, you know what an apprentice is. An apprentice is a person who has committed himself or herself to a master. It might be somebody who is learning under the hand of a great chef or a great builder. Someone who has said, I will commit myself to this master craftsman so that the skills of that craftsman and indeed the character of that craftsman, the attention to detail, all of those things will move from him to me so that I can become like this one who is teaching me. I'm an apprentice. Jesus gathers apprentices. Many people gather to church. But those are often aggregations, crowds, not congregations of disciples. What we have today is a crisis in the church spread across North America of discipleship. We have had generations of people attending services but not being internally and spiritually formed after the image of Jesus so that they begin to understand that their chief loyalties and the work of grace that's going on in their life, their allegiances and the transformation that is supposed to take place is not to be shaped by the news cycle but by the good news of Jesus Christ. In an op-ed piece in the New York Times a couple of days ago, David Brooks wrote an article about something of the crisis in the evangelical world today. And near the end of that article, he quotes Tim Keller. Tim is a well-known, highly regarded pastor in New York City. Redeemer Presbyterian Church is where he served for many years, now retired. And in that article, Keller lists out some key issues which the church needs to address in our time, which includes intellectual rigor. 
and uh, creating people that are more adept at how they go about their work in the academy. Those of you who are university students here and perhaps visiting from elsewhere or watching online, you are uniquely positioned for the developing not only of your mind, but your mind as Christians so that you can serve the greater good. And that is an important factor. But he gets to the end of the list and he talks about new forms of church planting that are necessary, but that the great crisis facing the church today is one of spiritual formation. A revisiting of what conversion is all about. Conversion is not about merely raising your hand and saying, yes, I want to be a Christian, or shaking a hand or joining a church. It is rather a movement from one kingdom and one allegiance to another so that we begin to be shaped by Jesus. Now you think, well, I don't know that I want religion to shape me. I agree. I do not want dead religion to shape anybody. There is nothing uglier than a cold, dead orthodoxy. In East of Eden, John Steinbeck wrote a brilliant description of the wife of Samuel Hamilton. I'll read it to you. She was tight, hard, humorless as a chicken. She had a dour Presbyterian mind and a code of morals that pinned down and beat the brains out of nearly everything that was pleasant to do. I've gone to church with those people. Not here, not here. I just want to be really, really clear. Is that former churches, you know, no. Growing up, years ago. No, dead religion will produce narrow, shriveled souls. But what happens when people meet Jesus? What happens with Jesus is the first word in his sermon. Blessed. Blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Makarios is the Greek term. We don't really have a fulsome equivalent in English of what that word means. Blessed, it can mean fortunate, happy. Maybe the closest is flourishing. It was used in ancient Greek literature of humans who had risen up into the realm of having fellowship with the gods. They were having the kind of life you would have if you were in fellowship with the gods. You were makarios. You were flourishing. You were happy. You were blessed. This is the life in Romanian, astaviatsa. Blessed. But Jesus, in these beatitudes, utterly and completely inverts it, doesn't it? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. Blessed are the pure. How can you be really happy and be chasing purity around? I mean, my goodness. Jesus' kingdom inverts everything this world teaches us about what consists of authentic happiness. And so Jesus invites his apprentices into a way of living which is deeply counterintuitive to the sinful nature with which we've been raised and deeply countercultural to everything that surrounds us. I mean, exactly how powerful a message is it going to be in Boca to walk around saying, blessed are the poor in beautiful downtown Boca. Not everybody's going to think that is happiness, makarios. 
There's a Hebrew term. It shows up. Many of you know this in uh, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or sit in the seat of scoffers or stand in the path of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. He'll bear fruit in season. His leaf won't wither. Whatever he does, it'll prosper. The wicked are not so. They're like they're like chaff that's just driven away before the wind, Psalm 1. In other words, a blessed life, a life that has rootedness to it, a life that has substance to it. That's what we're called to. That's what Christ is doing in us to conform us to himself. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is saying that the path of human flourishing that the world has been selling to us is inverted and perverted, and you and I are being called into a whole new kind of transformation that's deeply radical. It goes to the root of what it means to be fully human, to be made into the image of Jesus as his apprentices. And that means we have to recognize we have a completely different citizenship. I'll put it to you this way. The dream of the kingdom is not the American dream. You say, well, are you being critical of the American dream? No. I'm just telling you the dream of the kingdom is bigger. It's a bigger dream than a house and a car and everything stable. It's a call to follow in life transformation, which down through the centuries has cost people everything and given them all that anyone could ever imagine because they were given the riches of Christ. That takes us to Matthew chapter 6. Do not be like them. The whole world is going crazy in their pursuits. These are religious pursuits. Jesus talks here about those who when they fast and when they pray, they parade it. Look at me pray, or look at me fast. I'm fasting. And it's not about keto. Come on. No, this is a, this is a religious fast. This is not about intermittent fasting. This is not what it's about. It's about this religious fast. Oh, look at me. Aren't I righteous? Look at my prayers. I pray beautiful prayers. Look at me parading my religion. Aren't I good? That's empty religious hypocrisy. But then there is also the anxiety of a driven materialism. Every parent knows what this is like. Every child has to have the right label on their clothes. Every one of us has to have the right hood ornament on our car. We've got to have those things which in our neighborhood tell everybody else we have arrived, we have achieved. But again, the kingdom inverts all of this. Your father knows what you need before you ask. Do not seek for those things. Look at Solomon In all of his glory, he wasn't arrayed as beautifully as the simplest flower in a field, Jesus says. And so there's a great inversion that takes place in this sermon that calls us out of a dead religious hypocrisy and out of an anxious pursuit of material wealth, out of the affluenza which has infected the entire world and told us that if we just have the newest, bestest phone, our hearts will be happy. But we find more and more that our souls are barren and we need to be recovered to a deeper, more meaningful life. And it's found not in pursuing self, but in denying self. It's why Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, there are so many Christians wearing a cross, but so few Christians bearing a cross. 
And so we are called to become the apprentices of Jesus. And you go, oh, this is going to be so exciting because I get to go to water walking 101. I'm going to go learn to do miracles. I'm going to go do signs and wonders. I'm going to go learn to do the stuff. But the stuff leads to Gethsemane, and the stuff leads to a cross, and the stuff leads to praying these kinds of prayers, not my will, but thy will be done. This is what it means to become one of the followers of Jesus, to realize that the priority of the kingdom is what's upon us, that we have become citizens of his realm. He is our king. But friends, what a king we have. You see, that leads into Matthew chapter 7 to the very end of the sermon. Look at Matthew chapter 7 at the very end. Do you remember what it says about how they responded to the end of his teaching? They were astonished. Why? When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? He was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. Now, I'm a scribe. I'm I'm in that, I'm a professional Christian. This is what I do for a living. But you see, if I wrote to you this week an email from the office and said, just emailing you this week, Spanish River Church, I have, uh, these are the things the Lord is commanding you. And I just started saying stuff. You would go, dear elders, we have a problem. Because I don't have that kind of authority. No, the authority of the pastor, the teacher, the scribe, the theologian is a, an accumulated understanding of 2,000 years of taking Jesus' teaching and quoting this theologian and that tradition and this commentary to help us understand what the text says so that we can bring to you the meaning of the text so you can hear not us but him. But Jesus doesn't need anybody to help people hear him when he's the one talking. He spoke with authority. He didn't quote other people as his resource or his reason for saying what he said. In fact, the people he quoted, he then contradicted. You've heard it said, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. I tell you, if you're sitting at the stoplight, and the person in front of you, when the light turns green, does not go, and you cuss at them, you have already murdered them in your heart. That's a loose paraphrase of what Jesus said. <laughs> I mention this in passing because this is my own sinful impulse. I thought I'd just confess my sins with you this morning. <laughs> and I've noticed that there are very aggressive drivers in Boca. It's like a spiritual superpower. It's like a gift of the Holy Ghost that has been distributed among the people of this city. So that when the light turns green, it's like F1. It's like, bam, 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 let's go. Man, we're on the move here. We're in a hurry. Got to get to Publix. Let's go. <laughs> you know. Everything about us is wrapped up in our impulses, our passions. And Jesus challenges every single one of them. He challenges not just our lusts. He challenges our anger. He challenges our greed. He challenges our priorities. Changed priorities ahead. He challenges us and brings us back to that first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let me just tell you again, as Americans, we're not real good at that. Paul said, I want to boast in my what? 
in my weaknesses. We don't, we don't like that. We don't want to boast in our weaknesses. We want to boast in the stuff we've done that's really good. We give out giant trophies. I still have my trophies. I've got them. My first trophy is when I was eight years old, most improved bowler. I have it. I have it in a youth bowling league. I've got that trophy. I know it's somewhere because I am not, you know, lay all my trophies down at Jesus' feet. I'm not doing that until I have to. Here's my trophies. You walk into a, an office anywhere in America, what do you got on the walls? Degrees. Let me show you where I've been. Let me tell you the college I graduated from, the law school that I attended. Let me tell you where I got that MBA. We got, with, and man, we, we blow those up, we frame them, we mat them. We've got them big in there. You know, if, have you ever seen a degree from Cambridge or Oxford? Do you know how big those, they're like, they're, they're like, they're like this big. They're like this big. And nobody hangs them on a wall. Nobody does, but boy, we do that because we are a resume achievement-oriented people. And Jesus says, blessed are the, the poor in spirit who know they're weak. Theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who, no matter how much they have in the 401k, blessed are all those who, no matter where they live, blessed are those who know that no matter how much they have, Inside, they need a Savior. Because at the end of the day, your money won't save you. And your idols, whether they're sex or power, cannot deliver you. Beauty, strength, none of them will be there on the day of your death saying, I died for you so that you could live. No, I made you die for me your whole life thinking you'd live forever and then the idols will laugh but this is what makes Jesus the king different because you see friends he spoke with authority and you say well that makes Jesus sound like a kind of despotic ruler well the ancient Near Eastern world was filled with despots when they had kings, they were absolute rulers. Today, Queen Elizabeth II celebrates the 70th anniversary of her accession to the throne. She has ruled by influence, but how much power does she have? Nothing. Nothing, really. She's a limited constitutional monarch. Jesus is no limited constitutional monarch. When he speaks... And you say, but pastor, I, 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 uh, I don't like that. Because there are things in this sermon that I don't want to do, that challenge, that say change priorities ahead. There's a little bit inside of us that's Western, ancient, you know, out West, that's kind of like, you know, a little bit of Clint Eastwood make my day kind of thing. <laughs> kind of, you feeling lucky, kid? Uh, don't tell me what to do nobody tells me what to do and pastor you sound like you're telling me what to do don't tell me look that's my job I'm supposed to tell you what to do I mean really <laughs> to be honest with you you know so I'm supposed to point you to Jesus who's telling you what to do and you say what what right does he have listen if you reject the authority of Jesus if you reject Jesus as your authority you are not rejecting authority you're just placing it somewhere else. 
You're probably placing it in your own self. I'm the authority. Where's that going to get you? Listen, friends, the only person I've ever met that I completely agree with is me, and I changed my mind. <laughs> we are fallible people. We are finite people. And we are fallen people. Our judgment is distorted and limited. What kind of authority do we have? Jesus created us. He created the whole cosmos. He rules over all things. And so not only is there no other king than Jesus, Jesus is a king like no other. Because all these ancient kings said, you will die for me so that my kingdom can grow. Jesus came on the scene and said, I will die for you so that you can come into my kingdom. This king died for you. Three days ago, I was sitting with a young man, 20 years old. He had come to faith at age 17. And I said to him, tell me your journey, tell me your story. And he said, well, I began really aware of the gospel in my teens, but when I was 17, and I'm going to quote him exactly here, because it's so beautiful. He said, I realized I was an imperfect man who had to be saved by a perfect man. There is only one perfect person, and his name is Jesus. He is the king, and he died so you and I could live. The bad news is we cannot save ourselves. The good news is he has done everything that is necessary for you and I to be saved. And all we have to do is hear him and say, I put my trust in you. Because if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, we ask you that you would come with your authority, your word into our lives, change our priorities as citizens of the kingdom, remind us to boast in the cross and not in ourselves. And we ask this in Jesus' precious and mighty name. Amen.